Thank you, Ensemble, for leading us in that beautiful hymn. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Titus? Titus chapter 1. We'll begin reading there in just a moment. Uh, as I mentioned, as I sent out an email and posted a video and, uh, uh, in the newsletter, and I would, have, I would have sent a pigeon if I thought I could have got the word to you, but I just wanted to let you know that we were going to start uh, this week going through the book of Titus. Um, if you're not familiar with, uh, with a church that's studying and preaching through, uh, straight through a book of the Bible, I believe that's very beneficial for us for multiple reasons. But as you know, uh, in 2 Timothy, God tells us that his word is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so if God's word is so perfect, we need to do our part in studying it and getting to know it. So we're going to begin this morning going through the book of Titus. Uh, Because we don't have bulletins right now, you don't have a place in a bulletin to write out sermon notes as you probably are used to doing. But I wanted to make available to you these ESV scripture journals. They were on the table in the back. If you didn't get one, raise your hand. You would like one, raise your hand and somebody's going to bring one to you. And uh, I'm going to keep talking about it. But if you didn't get one, let let us know and we'll get one to you. Uh, but these are designed, they have the, the text on one page from the translation I'm preaching from. They're blank on the other side so that you can take notes. And my desire is not that you would know the outline of my sermon, although I hope it's helpful to you. My desire is that you know God's Word. And so you can take these scripture journals home with you each week. You can uh, study during the week. You can prepare your heart for worship each Sunday. And so I hope that this is beneficial to you. Titus chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, and if you're able, would you stand, whether in body or in spirit, for the honor of reading God's Word? Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are our Savior. And that because of what you've done on our behalf, that we can have knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. We pray that that would be true of our lives this day. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If there's anybody else that didn't get a scripture journal, Mike's got them right here. I saw a hand over there. Anybody else? The title of the sermon is The Gospel Leads to Godliness. Most of us have written a letter before, even though letters are somewhat becoming uh, not as common or as necessary as they once were because of email and text messages and all the other ways that we have communicating. But our style of writing a letter today is very similar uh, to the way writing letters has been for hundreds of years. And so when we have these letters in the New Testament, they're similar in their structure, but they are slightly different. One of the differences is that we wait until the end of a letter to sign it, to tell it who it's coming from. And so if you get a letter in the mail, if you can't recognize on the envelope who's sending it to you, you have to go forward to the end of the letter to find out who has sent it to you. But in the New Testament and in the Greek culture of that day, they included that all in the introduction. They told you who was sending it, who they were sending it to, and why they were sending it. And they usually had a piece of thanksgiving or blessing all there in the introduction. 
Now, introductions in uh, the Bible's letters are sometimes parts that we just like to run right past. Maybe we think that there's not a lot of information there for us. Maybe we think it's not as important. Uh, But we're going to see here in just these four short verses, uh, Paul has a lot to say to us, and God uh, uses his word to shape us into his likeness. And so I trust that this will be a blessing, even as we see in this introduction. There are three movements uh, as we go through it, three parts. And so we're going to begin in the first part, which is simply uh, Paul identifying himself, telling us who has written the letter. He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, most of us, if you've been in church for very long, you're familiar with this man, Paul. We know his name. We're familiar with uh, the fact that he has written a great deal of our New Testament. And yet he uses two phrases to identify himself here in this first sentence. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Two phrases to describe himself, showing both his humility and his authority. He says first that he is a servant of God. Normally, Paul refers to himself as a servant of Christ. And of course, theologically, there's not a lot of difference between saying a servant of Christ and a servant of God. But by using this language, servant of God, Paul connects himself with many of the Old Testament servants of God. Because you see, Abraham was called a servant of God. And Moses was called a servant of God. And David was called a servant of God. And so here Paul identifies himself with that great cloud of witnesses by saying that he too is a servant of God. But of course, as many of you know, this word servant could also be translated slave. Paul is saying that he's a slave of God. Now we all recognize that slavery is a terribly sinful, horrible institution, and it has been Ever since uh, it was created, ever since we see it in the early pages of Genesis, we know that slavery is a sin. And yet sometimes we wonder, well, how could Paul speak of it so favorably? How could he use it as a positive image by saying that he is a slave of God? How could he use this image in this way? Well, it's because Paul recognizes that truthfully, spiritually, we are all slaves. We are either slaves to our sin and to Satan, or we are slaves to Christ. Sometimes we think that once Christ has saved us and he's broken the bondage of sin in our life, that somehow Christ has just set us free, that we can go do whatever we want. And we're our own master now. We're not subject to sin. We can just do whatever we want. But that's not how it works. When Christ saves us and he sets us free from sin, now we're no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves to Christ. We are servants of Christ. And so that means that we go in the authority of Christ. His will is our will. His message is our message. And so Paul says that he is a servant of God, showing his humility. But he also says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, showing his authority. The word for apostle in its original meaning just simply means a sent out one. And so in that sense, we are all sent out ones. If we are in Christ, as we saw last week when we studied the Great Commission, if we are in Christ, we have been sent out. But none of us are apostles. Paul is using this word in a more technical sense. He's using it in the sense of the New Testament office of apostle. When we turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, and we see that after the ascension of Christ and after the death of Judas, we now have the 11 rather than the 12, and the 11 gather together to replace Judas. They see Old Testament prophecy pointing them to the fact that they need to replace Judas. And so they gather together and they have criteria They don't just pick anybody. They have a list of things that you had to have done. You had to have seen Jesus's entire earthly ministry. You had to have had an encounter with the risen Lord. And so we see that someone who 
holds the office of apostle had to have lived 2,000 years ago, as all of the apostles did. And now this office no longer exists. So it doesn't matter what the person on TV tells you or someone who comes and knocks on your door and claims to be an apostle. They may be something, but they are not an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul says that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Does this mean that we no longer have any influence from the apostles? No, because you hold it in your hands. Christ is the foundation of the church, and upon that is the work of the apostles. And everything that we need to know for life and godliness from the witness of the apostles is here in our Bible. So here in this first movement, we see Paul introducing himself. Just a reminder that who he is as he sends this letter. But I want to remind you, as we get very familiar with the character of Paul, we we know him and we're, we're used to him if you've been in church for a long time. I want to remind you that Paul was not always a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul became a servant of God, but at one point he was an enemy of God. As Paul, originally born with his birth name Saul, Saul of Tarsus, was not a servant of God. He thought he was. He claimed to know God. And yet in reality, he was an enemy of God. To put it in today's language, Paul was a racist terrorist. Now, I know that may sound shocking to you. You've never thought of it in quite that language. But think about what the Bible tells us about Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew, and he thought that everyone else around him was inferior to him. If they were not a Jew, if they were not as religious as he was, they were inferior to him. All Gentiles he was opposed to. He was a racist. But more than that, he was a terrorist. Because what do we see Saul of Tarsus doing when he was on the Damascus Road going to persecute Christians? He hated anyone who was not a Jew. But more than that, he hated those Jews who were now professing the name of Christ. And he was going around killing them. He had governmental authority to do what he was doing. And when Christ met him on the Damascus Road, his life changed forever. But what he was doing up until that point, in our language today, we would call a terrorist. Because we have brothers and sisters all around the world, even this day, who are giving up their life for the sake of Christ. Because people who don't agree with them, who have a different faith than them, come to them and oppose them and threaten them and say, if you don't believe what we believe, we will kill you. And that's what Saul of Tarsus was doing until Christ met him and changed his life forever. Why do I tell you that? Because I know that in your life there are some people that you think could never come to Christ. You think they're too far away from God. You think that they're like Saul of Tarsus, that they have sinned so greatly, they're so unlikely to become a Christian. And yet, if anything about the life of Paul reminds us, is that anyone can come to Christ. Christ can make a difference in anyone's life. And so even if there's that person that you've, you've just stopped praying for, the person that you think they're too far gone, there's no way that they will ever trust Christ. Let the life of Paul, this servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, remind you of what Christ can do in the life of any person. We're introduced to Paul, who he is, but now he tells us in the second movement of this passage what his ministry is, what the purpose is. Of his ministry is. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Well, who are God's elect? All who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. From the beginning of time until Christ returns, every man, woman, boy, and girl who repents of their sins and trusts Christ as Savior is part of God's elect. And Paul has been called into service by Christ to be an apostle for the sake of their faith, that they would come to know Christ, and as we'll see, that they'll grow in the knowledge of the truth. 
That's the purpose of Paul's ministry. It's for the sake of their faith and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, this is a key phrase that we're going to see. Uh, we're going to see this idea repeated throughout the book. Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Notice that trajectory. That he begins with their faith, that they believe, and then they grow in the knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. You remember what we saw in the Great Commission? We saw that Jesus has commanded us to go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, not just teaching them so that they'll have head knowledge, but teaching them so that they will observe all things that Christ has commanded. This is the same message that Paul is preaching here. He's saying that my ministry is for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but not only that they would simply believe, but that they would also grow in their knowledge of the truth, truth which accords with godliness. You see, you cannot separate the knowledge of the truth and the growth and godliness. Sometimes we, we think, boy, pastor, I wish you would just quit giving us so much doctrine and just give us some application. Just give me five steps to do something better. But the problem is, is that apart from knowing about who Christ is, you can't grow in godliness on your own. You can try and you will fail. Each of us could look back at our lives and see times that we've tried to grow in godliness, but apart from the work of Christ in our life, we can't do it. And so we can't jump ahead in God's program and say, well, I just want to be more godly, but I don't want to know more of God's truth. These go together. We have to grow in the knowledge of truth, which accords with godliness. This is one of the great themes of the book of Titus that we're going to see over and over, the connection between right belief and right action. Right devotion and right doctrine. These go together and they are spelled out here. They're connected in Scripture. The knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. But that's not all that characterizes the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He says also that he is preaching. He's been called into God's ministry in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So our faith our hope and our knowledge, they're all connected in this idea of eternal life that God has planned before the foundations of the world. Now, this is confusing to us because we can't wrap our heads around before the foundations of the world. We can't wrap our heads around what, what he literally says is eternal life before the eternal ages began. God has made us to be creatures of time. And sometimes we forget that God has created time and one day there will be a time that time ceases to exist. And so when we think about eternity, we think about a clock that just never stops running, just over and over and over. We're going to be there 10,000 years and we've just begun. But there will come a time when time ceases to exist because God has made time. Before he made time, he had planned out our salvation, our destiny of eternal life. Ephesians tells us that he had already planned out our good works. All of this was done before creation, before the foundations of the earth. And yet, the Bible also teaches, as we saw in Sunday school, that you have to come to a moment in this time that you trust Christ. No matter what Christ has done before the foundations of the earth, in this life, in this day, you have to trust Christ. And that's Paul's ministry in a nutshell. He's saying, I've come to you to preach the hope of eternal life. But now we use this word hope a little bit differently than the Bible does. My children hope that at some point this winter it's going to snow. But we really have no guarantee that it will. 
And we have no, we have no way of knowing whether or not it will happen. We just hope. We hope it turns out well. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. We don't hope for eternal life in that way. The Bible uses the word hope to let us know that it is something we have complete assurance of. It just hasn't come to pass yet. We have complete, absolute assurance that God has given us eternal life. And the Bible says in one sense we already have it, but yet we're still here in this life. We're not yet present with Christ for eternity. So we have this hope of eternal life. But who's told us about it? Well, it originated with God. And notice we learned something interesting about God here. It says, God who never lies. Now, we might take that for granted. We think, well, of course God doesn't lie. We know that to be true. But have you ever stopped to think about every alternative version of God? All of the other religions have a God who can lie. The false pagan gods that we're going to see that Titus is on the island of Crete and they're steeped in mythology and all of their gods lied. So much so that we're going to see that the Cretans, the people who lived on this island, were characterized by several sins. And one of those was being liars. They were so steeped in this mythology and their gods lied that they were known as a people who lied. And we have in contrast the fact that God never lies. And God has told us that he has given us faith. He's given us knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And he has given us eternal life, which he promised before the ages began. But at the proper time has manifested in his word. At the proper time. In the fullness of time, as Paul says in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son long before the chronology of earth, the year one, year two, the way that we think of time. Before that happened, God had already planned out our salvation and our redemption. But in the fullness of time, around about 2000 years ago, Christ came to earth in the flesh. He came and he lived the perfect life that we could not live. He manifested through his word this promise of eternal life. At the proper time, God has done this. And how did he do it? What method did God use to proclaim the good news? What method has he given to Paul and that Paul is going to entrust others? The method is the method of preaching. Now, you know what's coming next. This is the part of the sermon where the preacher preaches about the importance of preaching. But that's absolutely true that God has given us this method and it never goes out of date. I know what people say, that people will not endure a sermon that pales in comparison to movies that they'll watch and the length of games that they'll watch and all this sort of stuff. But the, the common popular wisdom is that people just won't sit and listen for a sermon. We've got we to shorten it down and we've got to include a video. We've got to do something to entertain them. We've got to do all these things to distract people and make them forget that they're hearing from the word of God. That God has said the method that he spreads his gospel is through preaching. As we saw last week in Romans chapter 10, that how will they hear if, the, if no one goes to them to preach? How are they to believe if no one preaches to them? And so God has manifested in his word this promise of eternal life through the preaching with which Paul has been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul has been entrusted with the preaching of the gospel. And Paul is very concerned about passing on this ministry of the preaching of the gospel. As you see in the books of 1 and 2 Timothy and of Titus, this is his concern. He says in 2 Timothy that he has been entrusted 
with the gospel and he wants to pass it along and make sure that it is entrusted to Timothy and that Timothy raises up faithful men who are able to teach faithful men so that the, the method of preaching is preserved. The gospel is preserved for every generation until Christ comes. And Paul was concerned in his day because as we'll see, there are a lot of false teachers. There are a lot of people who posed as ones who were carrying the gospel, but in fact, they were teaching an entirely different gospel. It's a danger in every generation that the gospel will be neglected, that faithful preaching will cease. And so Paul is concerned. He says, I have been entrusted with the gospel. And therefore, Titus, you are being entrusted with the gospel. Again, a theme that we'll see throughout this letter. Paul has been entrusted with this ministry by the command of God, our Savior. This is the second movement of this passage as he's explaining the purpose of his ministry. It's for the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life. Promised by God, manifested through preaching. But Paul's not done with this introduction to the letter. He lets us know in verse 4 who he's writing to. Now, we don't think that that's rocket science because it says it at the top of the page in our Bible, the letter of Paul to Titus. But if you were receiving the letter, you would want to know who it's written to. It's written to Titus, my true child in a common faith. We don't know as much about Titus as we do about some other characters in the Bible, in the New Testament. Titus is not found in the book of Acts. He's mentioned several times in the book of 2 Corinthians and Galatians and once in 2 Timothy. And as we gather through, we can get a picture of Titus, but we don't know everything we would like to know about Titus. We see that Paul says that he is my true child in a common faith. This doesn't mean that Paul is Titus's biological father, but it means at some point along the way, Paul led Titus to faith in Jesus Christ. He's a true child in the common faith. Again, as we're going to see, there are a lot of false teachers. There are a lot of people who are professing to be children of the faith. And they're not. And so Paul is giving this letter, which incidentally was not just a personal letter to Titus. It's addressed to Titus, but it was going to be read before the entire congregation. And it's a reminder to all those people in Crete, those new believers, that Titus is a true child in the common faith. He's the real deal. But Paul connects this. Not only is he a true child, but he's a true child in the common faith. It's a faith that they share together. Paul, a Jew, and Titus, a Gentile, share this common faith. Remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that within the body of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ overcomes even the greatest ethnic division. And so even what's something that should separate people, like being a Jew and being a Gentile, those normally don't mix, but yet here they do because of the common faith. The faith in Jesus Christ has brought Paul together, it's brought Titus together, It's brought these people, these new believers on the island of Crete together, and it's brought us together as a church. We share the common faith. The faith, as Jude says, faith once for all delivered to the saints. But how does this happen? How does this common faith come together? It's summarized in that last phrase, a phrase that we often run right past. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is a common greeting throughout the New Testament. As you probably noticed, I began every service with some sort of New Testament greeting. They're very common. They're very similar. The one that Paul used most often is grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not something I made up. If you just start at Romans and you look, he opens Romans that way. He opens 1 Corinthians that way. He opens 2 Corinthians that way. And as you go through all the New Testament letters, you see that there is some sort of greeting. And they all have in common this idea of grace and peace. Because you have the gospel story summed up in these two words, grace and peace. Grace from God and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Much of the world is looking for peace, but peace can't be found apart from the grace of God. We must have God's grace because it is God's loving kindness, his favor upon us that he has shown us by sending his son to rescue us because we've sinned against him and we could never bridge that gap. We could never mend that broken relationship on our own. And God knows that. And so he lovingly sends himself to us. It is all of God's grace that we can be a part of this common faith. And when we have God's grace, it is then and only then that we can have true peace, everlasting peace. If you're here today and you're looking for peace, you recognize that your life is filled with sorrow, that you've made a mess of it all on your own, as we all do. None of us can have true peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. If that describes you today, then I plead with you to turn your life to Jesus, repent and trust him. But for each of us who are here today and we are a part of this common faith, be reminded that we have grace and we have peace. And it comes only from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Notice at the end of verse 3, he says, God is our Savior. At the end of verse 4, he says, Christ Jesus is our Savior. Again, this is a reminder that Jesus is God. And because Jesus is God, we must submit to him. We must yield our lives. We must yield our conveniences. We must yield our preferences, our desires. Everything that we have comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. Because it's through Christ and Christ alone that we can have grace and peace. Which leads us to the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We're going to sing a song here in just a moment. And it's a hymn of response. What is a hymn of response? Why is that different from a song of invitation? Well, it means that Justin's not the only one singing the song. It means we're all singing the song. And we're singing it as our corporate response to God's word. Because every time God's word is preached, we must respond to God's word. So in a moment, we're going to sing a song. And I'll be down here if you would like me to pray with you. If you would like to learn more about what it means to have grace and peace from Jesus Christ, I would love to talk with you about that. But first, we're going to have just a moment of silence. No moving, no music, no nothing, because we're going to pause before God and bow our hearts to God and pray. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will lead each of us to know how to respond to his word. Let's bow our hearts in prayer.